0: The following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For, for more information about our church, and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to that, we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, when I was young, one of the things that fascinated me was the whole concept of an idea of world records. I had a couple of copies of the Guinness Book of World Records in my room, and I'd often spend hours just flipping through them, thumbing through them, and just being amazed and, and in awe of some of the – Let's be honest, strange and weird things that people have done and counted as a world record. Well, it seems that since my childhood, the number of strange and weird things that people count as world records has only increased. For instance, the highest jump on a pogo stick. I mean, who really cares? But if you do, it's 11 feet, a little over 11 feet. The largest guitar amp. It's 10 feet long. It's 8 feet high. And it's 4 feet wide. Now, Perry's ordered a couple of those, and they'll be up here. (laughs) Pretty much will take up the whole stage, but behind that will be the worship team. Um, Most pinky pull-ups. You know, most people pull up with, you know, they're both hands, but somebody has done it with just his pinkies over the bar, and he's done 36 of them. The largest snail ever recorded was about 15 inches long, and it weighed over two pounds. Most times, a human's been struck with Lightning. Thought this one was kind of interesting. This poor guy is not very lucky. He's been hit seven times with lightning and lived to tell about it. I'm, I don't want to know this guy and I don't want to be around him. And most people crammed into a smart car. You know what a smart car is? Those are the really tiny little cars. They're two seaters. They're, they're probably not more than six or seven feet long. But 13 people have crammed themselves into a, a smart car. It's amazing world records out there. The Apostle Paul was not one to be left out when it comes to odd records. The longest sentence in the New Testament, in the Greek, was written by the Apostle Paul. We know that sentence as Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and it's actually made up of 202 words in the Greek language. Immediately following that sentence is another one that the the Apostle wrote, that is 169 words, and that second sentence is our text this morning. So stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, I have, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers Lord, we thank you that we can gather together this morning and be instructed by this great prayer of of the Apostle Paul's. We see in it, Lord, his care for the church, his desire for the church to grow in maturity and to grow in their understanding of who you are and how you care for us and all that we are in Christ. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might receive these great truths this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. So as Paul begins his prayer, his first words are, for this reason. And when we read that, we should naturally be asking ourselves, what reasons do you have in mind, Paul? What is it that caused Paul to want to pray for the Ephesian church here? The answer to that question is found in the verses that actually precede this chapter, that big long long sentence, that 202-word sentence. That's the for this reason. So let's take a look at that. For a moment, in verse 3, Paul writes that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He then continues with another stunning statement. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So stop and consider for a moment those two statements. Paul is telling us who we are in Christ. Far too often we define ourselves by our current situations and the circumstances that we find ourselves in this life. We then let those affect our, affect us and we let them impact our emotions and our thoughts and our actions and, and how we go about life. Yes, we are emotional beings. We are created in the image of God, created with emotions and, and feelings. A quick, a quick reading of the book of Psalms, and you'll see a vast variety of emotions being poured out by the psalmist as they interact with with God. While our situations and our circumstances are real and must be dealt with, we need to be careful to not let those define who we ultimately are. How often do we stop and consider the fact that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing? How often do you... Do you consider that the God of the universe chose you? He didn't choose you yesterday or last year or a hundred years ago. No, he says he chose us to be holy and blameless long before we were ever born, before he ever even spoke the universe into being. There are many verses in the Bible that describe who we are in Christ And As I read a few here in a second, I want you to take notice of the tense that these are written in. They're written in the present tense. These are are who we are now. Sometimes they also describe us in the future, but they are who we are now and how God sees us now. So here's a few of my favorites. Romans 6 and verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. So God sees us and wants us to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive in Christ, alive to God in Christ. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. So we should live our lives not under guilt and condemnation. Ephesians 1, we've just read a couple of these. Verse 3 We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the God of the heavens sees us as holy and blameless. Not next year, not in the next life. He will, but he sees us today as that. He predestined us to be adopted to himself as sons. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have those things today, and those define who we are today. Ephesians 2, verse 19, we are fellow citizens with the saints. We are members of God's household. Today, when Christ, who is your life, appears, this is Colossians chapter 3, you also will appear with him in glory. In 1 Peter chapter 2, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. These are some marvelous passages about God describing who we are and how he sees us today in Christ. So we need to ponder these great truths, be more aware of these things in our lives. Rather than allowing ourselves to be completely defined by our circumstances and situations, we need to be able to look beyond those and be aware of how God sees us today. And we need to let that reality have its proper effect on our feelings, upon our emotions, our thoughts, and our behaviors before God created the heavens and the earth, he had already He had already chosen you to be holy and blameless before him. He had already chosen you in Christ to be dead to sin and alive to God. He had already chosen you as a fellow citizen with the saints and a member considers you to be a member of the household of God. And he already had chosen you, and not to be put to shame. So God shows us in eternity past to be holy and blameless in his sight through our union with Christ. This wasn't some willy-nilly uh, or random selection. God didn't go get out his dartboard and write everybody's names up there and start throwing darts at the board to find out who he's going to to choose. No, he demonstrates his sovereign love in his choosing. Verse four of Ephesians one, it says, in love, he, referring to God, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So listen to the words he's used about his, his choosing there. He does it through love, through his pleasure and through his will. Nowhere does God, does Paul mention choosing the best, the smartest, the wealthiest, the healthiest or the tallest. His choice isn't based on our weight or our skin color, our political leanings, or where we live, or what country we've been born into. Rather, God bestows his blessings on us, not based on anything in us or about us, but rather it's all to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, referring to Jesus, who he loved. And if that wasn't enough... Paul continues in verse 11 and writes, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity for the purpose of his will. To drive that point home, in verse 13, Paul wants his readers to have no doubt who the you and the we are in that passage. In verse 13, he writes, "And you, also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the you and the we that God is referring to that Paul's writing about is us. Having said all that and more in one long sentence, Paul takes a breath and he begins his next sentence for this reason. For this reason, I'm going to pray. Paul has outlined and explained to the to the Ephesians God's sovereignty in salvation and in our election that choice is on the basis of grace and blessing that we enjoy as a people of God what God has sovereignly done what God has already sovereignly done gives Paul a good reason to pause and to pray. Paul's prayer now becomes a model for us of how we should pray for each other and in light of and in line with the sovereignty of God. In particular, Paul's going to draw attention in this prayer to three aspects of the sovereignty of God. The first is because God is, the first reason because God is sovereign, we give thanks. So with verse 3 to 14, fresh in his mind, Paul begins his prayer. But there's something else on Paul's mind, fresh on Paul's mind as he begins. He's heard something about these Ephesians. He isn't with them, but he has heard about their faith and their love for each other. This letter of the Ephesians is dated to roughly A.D. 62. This would put Paul in prison in Rome at the time when he's writing this letter. So while he's in Rome and he's in prison, apparently somebody comes to him with the with word about the Ephesian church. And Paul gets a report, and it's a good report that he gets from them. He hears and he's being told that these are people of faith and the faith in the Lord, and that there is a genuine love for each other and for all of the saints being dis- demonstrated and expressed in that church. So Paul's encouraged to hear this report about the conversion and the sanctification and the evidence of God's work in their lives, of the men and the women who are part of the church. Paul's encouraged that their faith in Jesus is strong and that their lives have been transformed in such a way that their love for each other is plainly seen by people around them are they doing it perfectly i think the answer was fair answer is is no probably not while there have been genuine confessions of faith in christ paul later on in this letter has to remind them that their salvation is by god's grace and not their own works paul paul acknowledges their love for all the saints but later on he's going to have to encourage them to overcome barriers to unity that they're facing And it's important to note of who Paul is giving thanks to here. He's thanking God for the faith and the love that he hears about in the, in the, in the Ephesians. Paul thanks God because Paul knows that it's the sovereign God who has chosen these folks. And that he's the sovereign God who has transformed their lives so much so that these people of faith and people of love that it's, it's evidenced by the people around them and people who see it because of that. Paul rightly thanks God for the people. D.A. Carson summarized this passage uh, well, the, the idea of giving thanks to God. He says, The assumption, of course, is that apart from God's powerful transforming work, these people would never have been converted. Without God, they would never have begun to display the trust, the faithfulness, and love now richly displayed in their lives. Therefore, Whatever Christian virtues characterize them become the occasion for how heartfelt praise to God. So this week, I became aware of several families in this church who are helping a widow in our community who doesn't go to the church, who needs a roof on her home and doesn't have the funds to pay for it. There's a roofer in our congregation, and he, along with a couple of other families, are going to work together to see that this woman gets a roof over her head before the winter rains come. Let me just say that hearing stories like that as a pastor causes your heart to leap for joy. I feel a bit like the Apostle Paul when I heard this story. I've, I've heard about the faith of people in this church. I have heard about their love for the saints. And like Paul, I give thanks to God for them. God has clearly transformed the lives of these families in such a way that they are willing to give of their own time and their own finances to help someone Else in need. So praise be to God for clear evidence of his work in our midst. Secondly, because God is sovereign, may God's purposes and salvation be accomplished. God has chosen us in Christ. In love, God has predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. God has lavished on us the riches of his grace. For these reasons, Paul prays. And for these reasons, we should be praying as well. God's sovereign grace in our lives should be an incentive for us to pray, just as it was for Paul. We look around us at our friends and our family in the church, and we see God at work. Therefore, for this reason, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. What is it that precisely that Paul is asking for? Paul's now going to get very specific in what he's going to pray for and what he's going to ask for in the lives of these Ephesian Christians. Is it a general, generic, catch-all prayer? He's going to target in. He's going to hone in on several, several things. The first request is for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be granted to the believers. Now listen, now listen to the reason why Paul asked for that. He's going to ask for that revelation, um, spirit of wisdom and revelation to be given to the Christians so that they would have a knowledge of him. Or other translations would say it maybe a little bit better, that they would know God better. There are any number of things that we might be asking God for, for our friends, for our families, for members of this church. But does that one rise to the top of your list, that we would pray and ask God to reveal himself so that we would know him better? Anyone who identifies as a Christian who claims Christ as their Lord and Savior already knows God. But do they or do we, do we know God enough? Isn't there more that we could know about our God? Isn't there more that we should know about God? Hopefully we would answer that into the affirmative and say, yes, there is more that I, I need to know, more that I want to know. And Paul agrees with you. Again, we have to look at how Paul forms his prayers. Paul's very intentional about his wording in in all of Scripture, and and it's, it's no different in this prayer. He asked God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul knows that it will take God revealing himself to us in order for us to get to know him better. Just as it took an act of love by God to choose us to adopt us as his children. So it takes an act of God in order for us to get to know him better. And he does that through the giving of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul's putting an emphasis on the great need of a church, of the church here. And I speak about the church in, in broad sense, not just CLF, but the church universal. The world all around us, it's all about me, myself, and I. Follow your heart. Do what's right for you. The self-care, self-esteem, personal fulfillment. Life is all about me and my own satisfaction. Sadly, there are too many Christians that, that buy into that idea and that concept. We spend way too much time pursuing self-fulfillment, self-gratification, and far too little time pursuing God and knowing Him better. We get that mixed up. It only stunts and slows down our growth in our faith in Christ. Sadly, there are a lot of religious people out there, people who would identify themselves as Christians, and yet they do not know Christ. And Jesus issues a serious warning to these people in Matthew 7. It says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the great need of any church, CLF included, whether it's a healthy church or not, is to know Christ and to know him crucified. We all need a better, a deeper, a fuller knowledge and understanding and experience of our of our God. We should all join with the statement of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 where he writes that I may know him, speaking of God, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection that's the key to living life in the fullest knowing god more kent hughes writes we ought to read scripture with an eye to knowing him we ought to listen to preaching with this in mind we ought to pray this for the church and for ourselves for it's an apostolic spirit-ordained prayer so paul prays for the ephesians that they would know him better Uh, know God better or grow in the knowledge of God. Paul knows and understands the only way that we will know God better is if the father of glory reveals himself to us more and more. God must reveal himself in order to us in order for us to know him better and more fully. Desire for Paul is that we know God better. And Paul knows it's what's necessary for that to happen. We have to be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We can um, we can read wonderful and insightful theological books. You can attend the theology classes that are offered here at, at church. We can engage in conversations with others after church throughout the week. And all of these things are good investments of your time. They are worth your energy, and they will serve you well. But they alone can't take you into the depths of knowing God. Paul doesn't ask the Ephesians, ask God to give the Ephesians more time in their day to read another systematic theology book. Paul knows that the only way they're going to know God better is if God was to grant them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. God has to reveal himself to us if we're going to know him better. There are a lot of people who've read the Bible, a lot of people who've studied the Bible, many, many good solid theological books have been read by many people, but yet they don't know God. We don't get to know God, the God of glory, by simply reading about him. The God of glory must reveal himself to us. And he does that through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's why Paul prays as he does. The second request of Paul's prayer is that the eyes of our hearts... We'll be enlightened so that we can grasp some important truths about ourselves. It's the spirit that reveals. But we must have our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our heart, opened in order to receive what's being revealed. I like to think of it a bit like a dog whistle. Dog whistles, if you know those, they, they, they emit sound at a frequency that the human ear can't pick up. But apparently dogs can hear it quite well. So I've got an emergency kit that I carry with me sometimes when I'm out hiking and just just a bag with some stuff in it goes in a, in a little backpack on my and I carry it around inside of that is a is a whistle. If I get lost or was to stumble and break bone or need twist, a, twist an ankle or something and need some help, a whistle will carry much farther than the human voice. But my whistle is not a dog whistle. I could be out there blowing on that whistle for days and no one is going to hear me because humans can't hear a dog whistle. I may get a few dogs come, but uh, that's not really going to be, bring the help that I need. So I carry a whistle that humans can hear, and I can blow on that, and the sound carries much farther. And I might be able to, to uh to get the help, so I, I use a, a tool that can be heard by people that that can help me. So I blow a, a whistle that that works in the frequency that the human ear can hear in. So likewise, in the spiritual world, in the spiritual realm, if the eyes of our hearts are not in sync with the wisdom and revelation that the Spirit is revealing about about God, it's going to go completely unnoticed by us. So Paul's aware of this, and it's reflected in his prayer. Again, he's praying that God alone and and confessing that God alone can reveal himself to us. But we have to have the eyes of our hearts open to hear what the Spirit or to see what the Spirit is revealing. So our prayers, Paul's prayer, it reflects that. He's asking God to reveal himself through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we could see what God is revealing. Paul then clarifies exactly what it is he wants God to allow us to see and grasp. Paul asks God to help the Ephesians to be able to grasp and to understand the hope of our calling, which is the goal of our salvation. When God calls someone to salvation, it's an effectual calling, means that it is certain that it will happen. God leaves nothing to chance so our calling is effectual. The same way the hope of our calling is equally certain, and we need to be able to fully grasp and comprehend that hope. It will be fulfilled in the future, but it's no less certain than our salvation is today. Life can be hard and is full of disappointment. We get discouraged, maybe and depressed, and despair sets in. But hope is is actually the opposite uh, of despair. So the hope that we have been called to is eternal life in the presence of God. Romans five two, Paul wrote, hope the hope uh, hope of the glory of God in Colossians three four. It's the hope of appearing with Him in glory. In Ephesians five twenty seven, it's the anticipation of being presented to Christ as a bride in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Hope assures us that we are going to stand and endure with Christ. It's wonderful to read verses like that, and we, we read them, and we acknowledge them, and we shake our heads, and then we uh, assent to them, we agree with them. But to fully grasp and comprehend what our hope is requires more than just that. This life and all the challenges, the, the difficult circumstances we face, the strained relationships, the hardships, the health challenges, the stress, the, the temptations that we face, the anxieties, the tests of our faith. In reality, those are just temporary. The day is coming when all of that's going to be behind us. And Paul prays that we would know, that we would know that, and that we would live life in that knowledge, that we would know it beyond a shadow of any doubt, that hope, that hope is just as certain as our salvation is in and through Christ. So how often do we live in the here and now with little or no reflection about the future or looking towards eternity? The challenges, the difficulties we face, the, the strained relationships, all that I just read, the hardships, the health, the stress, the temptations, the anxieties, the fears, the tests of their faith. They are all real. And they are part of the journey that we're on. They are very real and we need to be aware of them. But we also need to be reminded that that's not our hope. Our hope is not in the American dream. It's not 2.3 kids, a minivan in the garage, four-bedroom, three-bath house, an eight-to-five job five days a week with three weeks of vacation. That's not what we're hoping in. There's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not ultimately where our our hope is. But if we were to fully grasp the truth of our future hope that we have in Christ, it's going to allow us to navigate through our lives and the challenges we face and and the difficulties we face with an eye towards eternity. The gaze on eternity, though, isn't something that we're naturally going to fall into and naturally do. So Paul prays, and we need to pray as well that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened so that we may know what's the hope that we've been called to. Paul continues his prayer with a request that the Ephesians would grasp the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Back in verse 14, Paul assures his believers that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until that becomes a reality for us. But ponder for a moment what Paul is not only communicating about us, but what he is praying for us to completely grasp. We, speaking of you, sorry, you and me, we are God's inheritance. We are the inheritance that God the Father has given to his son, Jesus. We are God's inheritance, God's gift to his son. God sees us in Christ, not as some beat-up old car that's the end of its life and needs to be hauled off to the junkyard. We aren't a piece of scratchy, dusty, smelly piece of furniture that just needs to go to the dump. We aren't a piece of cloth that is only good for wiping up oil off the garage floor. In Christ, this verse says, us, we are a treasured possession. We, we're our, we are that treasured diamond ring that gets passed down from generation to generation Last week, Perry talked about a 68-7 Camaro. That's us, if you're into cars. That's us. We're that valuable car. We're the priceless piece of art that is handled handled with white gloves. So think about for a minute, what is your most treasured possession? You are that to God, only exponentially more. In Christ, God sees us as being of infinite worth of an inheritance that's worthy of only one person, and that's his son. We need to ask God to help us to see ourselves and others like that. If we were to see others in that light as the valued and treasured possession that they are, if we see them as co-heirs, if we see them as children of God created in his image, if we see others as God's treasured possession, it will affect our relationships and how we interact with others. We need to see each other that way when you see ourselves and see others as what we are, a treasured possession. Paul is asking God to allow us to see who we truly are as as, as God sees us in Christ. Paul wants us to appreciate and to grasp the great value that God places on us, not because we have an intrinsic worth in a, of ourselves, because, but because of the value that we have of who we are in Christ. The Ephesians believers, you and I, have been chosen in Christ and his righteousness has been reckoned to us. And that makes our destiny is, is to be heirs with Christ. We are the treasured possession that God gives to his son. So if we maintain that vision before our eyes of who we are, if we live in light of that great truth, nothing less than God's inheritance then our desire will be to live in line with his unimaginably high calling on our lives. Doesn't mean that we walk around proud and arrogant. Now we are, if we're going to strut around and commend ourselves for all the great things that we've done. Rather, Paul wants us to grasp the riches of the glory of God's inheritance. That is the great privileges that we belong to us because of who we are in Christ. Simply because we are God's inheritance, can there be any greater and higher incentive to live in light of the glory of God and of heaven than that to recognize and realize who we are? F.F. F. Bruce writes, Paul prays here that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them. His plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling and that they may accept in grateful humility, the grace and glory thus lavished on them. So in view of the grace and glory that's been lavished on us for no other reason than God made his has chosen to make us his inheritance. We ought to live for God's praise. That's why God wants us, or that's why Paul wants us to grasp who we are in Christ. And Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we could grasp that great truth. Paul has one final request of God. He asks that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we might know the, God's immeasurably great power towards us who believe. The, Paul doesn't want the believers to live dead, powerless lives. We may, re- orth- we may be rich on our orthodoxy, we may be rich in our understanding of salvation, we may have a solid grasp of sanctification, we may know all of that, but live in a way that shows little or no transformation. The immeasurably great power of God brings about real and noticeable transformation in the life of a believer. Paul will lay out in a moment what that power is that he's going to call upon. But Paul knows that the power of God is the power that can change lives. And he knows that we must pray that we will see and grasp that power and not just know it, but live in light of it and experience it in our lives today. This is an amazing power that Paul is going 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 to share with them. It's an amazing request that Paul has just asked God to do in the lives of his friends that we might know God better and have the insight to fully understand what is the hope of our calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurably greatness of his power towards us who believe. And finally, because God is sovereign, Paul takes note of the power of God. Paul has prayed for some mighty things here, that we might be given the spirit of wisdom and knowledge of the glory of God. That we might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we can fathom the hope to which we are been called. that we can fathom the riches of his glorious inheritance that we would understand the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. In case the Ephesians or we have any doubt that God is able to accomplish this, that God is able to answer this prayer. He reminds them and us of a few things that, that, re, that reveal the power of, of God. But the power of God that Paul is trusting on is according to the work of God working of his great power that he worked in Christ. So what exactly did this great power do? Well, what comes to mind when you think of God's great power and you want to ponder that and meditate on it for a few minutes? Well, God spoke and the heavens and the earth came into being. That's pretty powerful. God spoke again and there was light. That's impressive. Quartz crystals can vibrate 32,768 times a second. Pretty impressive that God can count that fast. My grandson, who was here in the first service this morning, likes to play hide and seek. And the person who will be doing the seeking has to count to 20. That's plenty of time for him to go and to hide. But try that, playing that with God. Tell God to count to 20. If he can count to uh, 32,768 in a second, it's not going to take him very long to get to 20 probably not enough time to go and hide. So when I'm playing with my grandson, Papa Dave gets to count to 20. If we were to play with God, we'd have to ask him to count to 983,000, because that would give us about 30 seconds to go and hide. Current estimates for the distance from one edge of the universe to the other edge of the universe are roughly 93 billion light years. Yet God is simultaneously on one edge and the other at the same time. Consider the variety of animals, the variety of trees and plants around us, the vast number of of creatures in the ocean. Those all display something about the power of of God. It goes beyond our imagination and our understanding. Paul, however, doesn't turn to creation. Paul begins with the power that was on display when Christ was raised from the dead. The power that Paul wants us to experience is the same power that was on display When God rose his son from the dead, Paul has the resurrection in mind when he's praying here, the resurrection that was the death of death and the defeat of sin. Paul also sees the power of God and the glory of God in display when God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There are various levels of rule and authority mentioned in Scripture. There are angelic and demonic powers. There's earthly realms. There's heavenly realms. There's thrones. There's dominions. There's rulers and authorities all mentioned throughout Scripture. And but ruling all over all of these, on top of those ruling all over all of that sits the Lord Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand, seated at the right hand of God. So God sits on the throne, but at his right hand, at a place of honor, a place of dignity, a place of equality sits Jesus. It's a phrase that's used throughout scripture to indicate the power and the sovereignty of Christ. John Calvin described it this way. He said, Christ was invested with lordship over heaven and earth and solemnly entered into possession of the government committed to him. And that he, and that he not only entered into possession once for all, but continues in it until he shall come down on judgment day. So immediately after this verse or this prayer um, in over in chapter two, Paul writes that although we were dead in our trespasses and sins and were by nature objects of God's wrath because of his great love for us, God being rich in mercy, says God made us alive in Christ and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Obviously, in one sense, we live still here in earthly realms, but in another sense, because God views us as in Christ and Christ is seated with his father in the heavenlies. Therefore, God sees us there as well because of great God's great love for us. That will be our ultimate destination. We will be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Obviously, we still live here in the year 2021. We live in Roseburg, Oregon. But this is only a temporary, secondary address at best. We will be, and we already are, citizens citizens of the kingdom of God, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So Paul concludes his prayer, his 169-word prayer. He takes a breath, and has, he has this one last final declaration. And as he writes, and he puts all things under his feet and gave him, again speaking of Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and all of the sovereign power of God displayed in Christ is for the good of the church, the good of you and me. Elsewhere, Christ is portrayed throughout Scripture as the head over all things, implying the, uh, speaking about the, the uh, authority and the sovereignty that, he, that he, he has. But here Paul includes the body of Christ. Christ is not only the head over everything, it says he's the head over the church, which is depicted as his his body, and we believers are also defined as the body. So the relationship portrayed here ensures for us that the power and the sovereignty exercised by the risen Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God the Father, is for the good of the people of the church. So all the power that God displayed in Christ, Paul said that's a gift to us, to gift to the church. So all of our days and everything about our lives, when we will be born, when we'll die, where we live, our spouse, our children, the joys, the sorrows, the tests of our faith, the color of our hair, what church we attend, the foods we like, and on and on and on. It's all under the control and the sovereignty and the authority of of Christ. So the one who took on our sin, who suffered the wrath of God in our place. Who died in our place. The one who was crucified in our place. Is the one who sovereignly guides our lives. It's to the God of our Lord Jesus. The father of glory that Paul prays to. And it's the power of God displayed in Christ. That Paul relies on to answer his prayer. And amazingly all of the sovereignty is exercised for the benefit of the church. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So all the power and the authority that's been vested to Christ and all the power and authority that God used to raise him from the dead. God says that's a gift to the church. So what kind of worship should that cause us? Should that infill us with when we stop and we consider what Paul is asking for and who we are in Christ? D.A. Carson summarizes the prayer this way. He says, brothers and sisters in Christ. We will sometimes come to places where, as we try to think about God, we will conclude that these things are in that that these things are way beyond us, that we cannot take them in, that we cannot comprehend Him, but if we focus on what God has revealed of himself, such meditation will become a ground not for complaint, not self interest not for fatalism or an excuse for sin, but a ground for worship and an and an incentive. To approach the sovereign, loving God and intercede with Him according to His plan and His purposes declared in Scripture for His Son's glory and His people's good. So, what are some points of application here? A couple of things. Can we be a church that's thankful? And I actually think we do a great job of this already. There are. There are many people that I see serving each other, caring for each other, helping each other out. And, when I, and I often hear people in conversations around on Sunday mornings throughout the week of people who are great, grateful and they're expressing their gratitude and their thanks to people who, who have helped them, who served them. So you're doing a good job of that. Keep it up. I commend you for that. Just one comment. We need to be careful and be mindful of who we're we're thanking when we do those things. We need to be aware, as Paul was, when the, he heard the report of the Ephesians that they had, of the love that they had for the saints. Paul thanked God for that because Paul was aware of who had transformed those people's lives. God is the one who transforms people's lives where they were able to love each other as Christ loved the church. And God and Paul thanks God. So, yes, we should. It's right to thank each other. But we cannot forget about thanking God, the God who saved us and the God who's transformed our lives and makes it possible for us to do those, those things. And secondly, I want to ask you, when was the last time you prayed for such things as, as Paul has just prayed for the Ephesian church? When was the last time you prayed that for yourself, for your family members, for friends, for other people in this church? The prayer of Paul here in Ephesians 1. Paul another great prayer in Ephesians 3. Another one in Colossians. Another one in 1 Thessalonians. Another one in 2 Thessalonians. These are all very insightful prayers. and I encourage you, go and spend a few minutes and read those. And let those inspire you and lead you in how you could be and should be praying for each other as we go forward. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the words that you inspired the, the Apostle Paul to pray for the Ephesians, and Lord, for us as well. Lord, we want to be amazed by your, your love and your kindness towards us demonstrated in Christ. Lord, so we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that they would be enlightened and in tune with your revelation that we could be assured of the hope that we have, that we could be assured of that great calling, that we grasp and understand what it is to be your inheritance, that we are your gift to your Son, and Lord, that we might then also comprehend the gift that you've given us in Christ and how his rule and his authority is for our good and for our benefit. Lord, we pray that you would grant that. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.